Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. Good morning. It's a privilege to be able to open God's words with you today. These are the very words of Christ. They're life-giving, and they will give life to you. All scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof and correction, and I pray today that your faith would be strengthened in the Lord who is resurrected, and he calls broken disciples to follow him and to share the good news of what he has done. Scriptures teach us that we're to teach expositionally. So we have been going through the entire book of Luke, chapter by chapter, week by week, and the context is important to understand today's passage. So let's take a quick recap into where we've been and where we're going. Last week, Michael explained how all of the scriptures testify to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The law, the prophets, Genesis through Revelation, every chapter of the Bible is meant to point to Christ, his death and his resurrection. And the week before, Wade taught about Jesus' bodily resurrection, how it really matters that Jesus Christ in his flesh truly rose from the dead. He was not some spirit, but he was in the flesh. And the week before, Alex gave us the context for why all this matters, Jesus truly died on the cross. He suffered and he bled for the forgiveness of our sins. Our Lord was truly dead and buried in the tomb. Luke tells us in the opening of his gospel that this, these last four weeks, these are the climax, the main point of why he writes this entire book. Luke 1, 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke wrote this gospel that you and I, Theophilus, and all of the disciples and all of the nations would know and we would have certainty that God became man. He suffered and died. He was buried and he was resurrected for the forgiveness of our sins. The main point of today's passage is that Christ's resurrection will compel a response. Everyone must decide if Jesus Christ was resurrected. What you believe about Jesus' resurrection will shape the rest of your eternal life. If you deny Jesus' resurrection, if you fail to believe in it, then you will be resurrected, but you will be resurrected under judgment. If you affirm the truth of the resurrection, then you too will be resurrected, but for joy in eternity and fellowship with the resurrected king. We who have been revealed, who have been shown the truth of the resurrection, are to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. Jesus does not call winners to be witnesses. He God, thank goodness, he calls witnesses who are sinners. He calls sinners who fear. He calls sinners who lose faith. And he calls sinners who are stupid. He calls us. He calls us by his power and his authority to witness to the whole world with a boldness and an authority that Jesus Christ is risen. Would you open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 24, verses 36 to 49. As they were talking about these things, 
Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace to you. We have to pause immediately. We have two questions. Who are they? And what are these things that they were talking about? We're picking up in the middle of a story. They are Jesus' disciples who deserted him in his time of need. They saw him taken away, arrested by the Romans, and put up on a cross. Peter denied him three times, and they fled from him. It was only John who could bear to watch the crucifixion. They left him for dead. A parallel passage in John tells us that this room they're in is locked because they are afraid of the Jews. They believe that they might be next. These are the men who left their lives to follow Christ. They walked with him and they listened to him teach foretelling his death and resurrection. But when the day came that Christ was crucified, they denied and abandoned him. They fled and hid in a locked room, hoping that they would not be next. However, they were also with the men whom Jesus talked with last week on the road to Emmaus. They ran as soon as Jesus revealed himself to them. Jesus appeared and demonstrated to them powerfully that he was the resurrected king. And the moment it clicks, he disappears. And immediately they turn around and they run back to the disciples to tell them everything that they had seen. We should take note, an application here. God has put relationship in the heart of man. God desires, he has placed a desire in us for fellowship with one another. These men, they're afraid, they're scared, they're worried. And when we too become scared and afraid, worried, it is good for us to go leave your home and talk with a friend about what has happened. Sometimes, even those who are mourning are the best comforters. And if you have good news, like those disciples on the road to Emmaus, you too should share that with others as an encouragement. As brothers and sisters, we're called to counsel one another, to bear one another's burdens. And this is why we have city group ministry here at Christ the King Church. We meet in others' homes, we give encouragement to one another, we share our hardships and our struggles, the things we're afraid of, and we pray for one another. We open the scriptures weekly and we apply it to our lives, walking in Christ in faith together. Please, after the service, go sign up for a city group. The disciples, they're gathered in this locked home. And at the very same time that they are talking about seeing Jesus resurrected, he miraculously appears standing among them. This is literally what resurrection means. Anastasis standing again. This is fantastic. You should be asking two questions, how and why, once again. How did Jesus get into this room and why did he choose not to knock like a normal person? (laughs) I think this is one of the beautiful glimpses of God's humor throughout the Bible. For some reason, we've got this image of God as a dour and sad person or a solemn person, but God has a glorious sense of humor. Did you know that he delights in making us marvel? He does this both through the created world and through the personal acts of Christ. In the created world, Psalm 104 explains, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan which you formed to play in it. 
the psalmist here picks up on what he's seen in creation. God made the Leviathan to play in the sea with the ships. Today, we see humpback whales launch their 40-ton bodies out of the ocean, singing for no reason. Scientists cannot explain it. Theologians can. God has placed joy in the heart of his creation, and it is meant to point us to the God who loves us and delights in making us marvel. God's humor is woven into the all of creation, and it is our joy and privilege to observe the world he has created and delight in it. Proverbs 25.2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. We're to be kings in this world, and we're to search out the glories that God has put in this world. More specifically, God displays his humor specifically in the acts of Christ. The first recorded miracle of Jesus is turning tons of water into wine. Mark 6, the disciples are terrified. They're on a boat in a storm and Jesus is watching from the shore and he sees their suffering and he appears in the water and he's walking alongside them on the water. This, <laughs> he doesn't go to the boat. He, doesn't go, he, uh, he w- chooses to walk next to them. He then appears to, next to them walking on water and, and uh, it's hilarious. They're, they're terrified, they're shaking in their boots, and um, Christ just calms the storm and offers peace. He uses funny illustrations when he teaches. Uh, he talks about planks being in your eyes. Uh, his insults are so creative. And when the soldiers come to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane, he makes the soldiers fall down as if there was some invisible stone there that they all fell down to demonstrate who's really in control. In a different post-resurrection appearance, Jesus appears before the disciples. They're out fishing, and he's standing on the shore, and he knows that they're not catching anything because he's providentially prohibiting the fish from entering their nets. And they don't know who he is. They don't recognize him, but he's on the shore playing with them. And he calls out to them, throw over your nets to the other side, and then they bring in a huge hull, and then they realize who he is. Uh, He's already done this once before, and they come back to the shore delighted. They know that he is Jesus. Jesus has a great sense of humor, (laughs) but it's not just his sense of humor that brings him here in this miraculous way. Here, Jesus is demonstrating his divine power. He is both God and he is man. Because he is God, he has power over death And he has the power over physics to teleport him or turn invisible or do whatever he did to get into that locked room. And we're also to see here that the kind of man he is, he's not tired and weary. This victory over sin and death has not worn him down, beaten him. He has come out of the tomb joyful, bounding in joy, appearing and disappearing, playing with people. This is a resurrected king. He is a king who has conquered his enemies. He bought this world with his blood. He owns it, and he owns everything in it. And he wants the disciples to know that he has done this because he has a job for them. Jesus appears to the disciples in a demonstration of power, but his first words are peace to you. Can you imagine how comforting this is to them? Jesus does not rebuke the disciples for betraying him, for fleeing in his time of need. He gave the normal Jewish greeting, and he indicated that he had forgiven them. There's no rift in the relationship. This is what Jesus does. Our Lord brings peace through mercy and forgiveness. 
And how do the disciples respond to Jesus' forgiveness? Verses 37 and 38. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And when he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do your doubts arise in your hearts? The disciples saw and they heard Jesus, but they thought he was a disembodied spirit. They're afraid and doubting. And Jesus gently rebukes them for these sins. These men were fools, not in the wicked sense, but in the dumb sense. They're there grieving the loss of their Lord while he stands right in front of them. It's to their own hurt that they're slow to believe. Our own doubts are like this. When we fail to believe the promises of God, it is not merely a weakness, but it's a sin. And Jesus describes it as the opposite of faith. Romans 14 tells us whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. James 12 describes the man who doubts as a wave that's blown back and forth by the wind. He's unstable in all his ways. Hebrews 11 says that faith is the conviction of things unseen. And John 20 says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not yet seen and yet have believed. When we doubt and we choose not to have faith, we rob ourselves of the comfort which God has given to us. Do you know of anyone who's naive? They believe so quickly the most absurd things, and it's often to their own hurt. However, on the opposite end of the spectrum, we have the disciples. They're cynics. They refuse to see what is plainly before them. Jesus calls his disciples away from these two ends of the spectrum, these sins, into a thoughtful trust. They were slow to believe the eyewitness testimony of the angels and the women who had already seen Jesus, but they were also slow to believe the scriptures and what they said about Jesus. This is the greater sin. They walked with Jesus. They heard him foretell his resurrection. He explained clearly how the prophets all promised that he would fulfill all of the prophecy. And yet the disciples doubted the very words of God, and their doubts caused them trouble. You and I face trouble when we doubt the promises of God. When we don't trust that God wants what is good for us, when we don't trust that God is all-powerful, we try to take control, and we do not have perfect control. Our desires wage war within us, and we turn to hate and murder, James says. Christ forgives sinners like us by making atonement that we can never achieve. All the doubts that we face, when we take, in, we take control of the, the, the lives that God has given us, um, we, we lead to trouble. We doubt God's goodness. The disciples were troubled because they were slow to believe. How could these men be so slow to believe? For the same reasons that we doubt the mercy of God. First, they have a deep sense of their own unworthiness. They abandon God in his, his time of need. But he's offering them forgiveness. They do not deserve God's grace, and they know it. They're self-aware. But he's there in front of them offering it. Their despair and how depraved they are and how wicked they are, how undeserving they are of God's grace keeps them from receiving the grace that God is freely offering to them. And it, it distorts the whole world. They cannot see the physical body in front of them. They see a spirit instead. This is what despair can do to us. Secondly, their hearts have been hardened. It's been days since Jesus died, 
and they have been wallowing in this sin, in this uh, sinful fear and, and anguish, and, and it's cut off hope. Time does not heal all wounds, and the days after Jesus' death have not been kind to them. Thirdly, they doubt because of intense former hopes. They expected to be seated in thrones next to Jesus in heaven as he slayed all of his enemies, and yet they watched his enemies slay him. Now Jesus has died, and they're cowering in a locked room. They had grand illusions and unmet expectations, which they had no reason to hold in the first place. Jesus corrected them, but those hopes and unmet desires kept them from seeing the truth. They created doubts on their heart. However, Jesus showed them compassion and mercy in their unbelief. He gave them faith. Verses 39 to 43. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. In their doubt, Jesus offers them proof that he really is there in the flesh. He offers up his nail-pierced hands and feet to touch. Have you ever touched a gaping wound? What a grace, what a mercy that Christ would offer himself up in that way. This is humiliating. He wants them to have a certainty that he is risen, but even still they don't believe. And so he takes a piece of fish and he eats it right in front of them. In Acts 10.41, Peter says that watching Jesus eat the fish is what made it click for him. Jesus is truly in the fresh. It's so ironic. The chief priests feared that the disciples would steal Jesus' body and pretend that he was risen from the dead when he wasn't. But in reality, Jesus is risen from the dead, standing among the disciples, and they're saying that he's just a spirit. Verse 41 shows us another reason for their disbelief. You wouldn't have expected it. Joy. It was too good to be true. They were marveling because it was something so big, impossible to accomplish, unachievable. There are actually a few stories in scripture that talk about disbelieving for joy. One of the best is Jacob, when he hears that his son Joseph is still alive. We all know the story of Joseph, his coat of many colors, interpreting dreams, and makes himself seem better than the other brothers that he had. And his brothers were so inflamed with anger that they threw him into a pit, they stole his coat, pretended that he was dead, and they sold him off into slavery. They went back to their father Jacob, told him, your son is dead. They didn't want him to go looking and find out what they had done. But years later, Joseph has risen to power in Egypt, and he provides for his family and forgiveness. And his brothers have the horrible task of going back and telling their father Jacob what's happened. Genesis 45, verses 25 through 28, tell us that story. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. 
I will go and see him before I die. There are so many parallels between Jacob and Joseph and Jesus. We don't have time to get into it, but take it as proof that all of scriptures are meant to point to Christ. In this particular story, we we see one parallel that I don't want us to lose. You can disbelieve for joy. Do you remember the time when you first believed the gospel? You probably believed something like, God could not forgive a sinner like me. It may have been a while ago for some of you, but try to remember. Um, how could God love a sinner like me? And we disbelieve. We, we, just, it's a, we disbelieve for joy because it's too glorious a thing to behold. God provided you faith to believe despite that doubt. You had a weak faith which God made stronger. Charles Spurgeon says in his commentary on this passage, does joy stop faith? Beloved, anything will stop faith if we let it. Faith is a divine miracle. Wherever it exists, God creates it and God sustains it. But without God, anything can hinder it. My prayer for you today is that God would strengthen your faiths to respond with belief to the resurrection. Jesus stood before the disciples and he called them to respond because his resurrection demands a response. You must either believe and repent or you will perish. Jesus showed patience and mercy to the disciples over and over again, and he will show patience and mercy to you too in your doubts. Our Lord does not break bruised reeds, but he shows more grace. He gives faith where there is, weak, where there is weakness. Jesus demonstrates his resurrection to the disciples. He raises his hands up, the same hands with which he makes demonstration to the heavenly Father. To the disciples, he raises his hands and he says, Peace, I am here with you, and I am real. And to the Father, he holds those same nail-pierced hands, and he says, it is finished. Forgive them, I have accomplished salvation. Jesus purchased the right to stand before God and plead on our behalf. Hebrews 12.24 says that Jesus' blood speaks for us. He is the only mediator between God and man. Jesus is the only one who can make payment. He was the only one who could defeat death. And he is the only one who can make you believe that he is truly risen from the dead. Our Lord is kind and merciful, and he is victorious. We have to make a brief aside here to talk about glorified bodies. The same proof which Jesus offers up to the disciples is used as a disproof of the scriptures. There are some who say that Jesus' glorified body does not align with how the scriptures describe glorified bodies. And so he must have never truly died. Instead, they say he was pulled off of the cross before he died and then secretly recovered. And if this is true, our hope is in vain, but it is not true. Here's the supposed contradiction. Revelation tells us that when we receive our glorified bodies, we'll neither hunger nor thirst. Let's read it. Revelation 7 15 through 17. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. This is speaking of the resurrected saints. And serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of their throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to the springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
This is what awaits all of the saints. We're told also elsewhere that our wounds will be healed and our bodies will be glorified. And so the claim goes, a glorified, beautiful body would not have the scars of the, resurrection, of the crucifixion. And so Jesus in his hunger and in his scarred body clearly is not a glorified body. However, the first argument, it's a non sequitur, and the second, a straw man. Nowhere does the text say that Jesus was hungry. He simply chose to eat to demonstrate his physicality. God frequently acts or makes himself to seem in a way that he isn't so that we can understand him. He works through analogies, and he doesn't intend for us to take them literally. But 1 Corinthians teaches us that we too will receive a body like Christ's, and it tells us that we too will eat in our glorified bodies. When Christ returns and all things are settled, the church will be seated with Jesus, the resurrected king, and enjoy the marriage supper of the lamb. It will be the finest food we ever taste. Now, for the argument that the scars are unbefitting a glorified body, Augustine addresses this in The City of God. He says, But the love we bear to the blessed martyrs causes us, I know not how, to desire to see in the heavenly kingdom the marks of the wounds which they received from the name of Christ, and possibly we shall see them. For this will not be a deformity, but a mark of honor, and will add luster to their appearance and a spiritual, if not a bodily, beauty. And yet, we need not believe that they to whom it has been said, not a hair of your head shall perish, shall in the resurrection want such of the members as they have been deprived of in their martyrdom. Bede says it more succinctly, that he, Jesus, kept his scars, not from inability to heal them, but to wear them as an everlasting trophy of his victory. It is entirely proper that Jesus chose not to heal the scars in his hands because they are the most beautiful hands on earth. Those hands display the wisdom and power of God and his plan from all of history, from creation to redemption to the restoration. Jesus magnifies the cross. All martyrs should wear their scars with pride, and I believe we will see those trophies in heaven too. If you've heard the doubts and the shortcomings of the disciples and felt yourself burdened by your own weakness, be comforted by the words of Spurgeon. Lastly, there's one sweet thought connected with the wounds of Christ that has charmed my soul and made my heart run over with delight. It is this. I have sometimes thought that if I am a part of Christ's body, I'm a poor wounded part. If I do not belong to that all-glorious whole, the church, which is his fullness, the fullness of him that fills all in all, Yet have I said within me, I am a poor maimed part, wounded, full of putrefying sores. But Christ did not leave even his wounds behind him, even those he took to heaven. Not a bone of him shall be broken, and the flesh when wounded shall not be discarded, shall not be left. He shall carry that with him to heaven, and he shall glorify even the wounded member. Jesus is delighted to glorify even infected source. Whatever low opinion of yourself you have, Christ is delighted to gloriously transform you. You and I can respond to the resurrection with joy because it means our own resurrection is coming and he will not leave anyone behind. The disciples finally respond in faith and Jesus continues to transform them. In Luke 24, verses 44 through 46. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, 
that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Like the watchmaker opens a broken pocket watch, Christ opens up the disciples' minds and the scriptures and brings to life what they have missed. He fixes what has been broken. This has been Jesus' entire ministry, opening blind eyes. Jesus uses the scripture to open blind eyes, and so should we. Every person here needs their eyes opened more through the scriptures. Today, this ministry is the Holy Spirit's. He lights up the text for us that we may understand how all of scripture points to Christ. And with knowledge comes responsibility and privilege. Jesus has redeemed the disciples. He has shown them his power, and he has given them faith so that they would go. Verses 47 and 48. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. You are witnesses of these things. This is the climax of today's passage. Jesus says to them, you have seen and heard and lived and felt the truth of the gospel. Now, therefore, you must go into all the nations and tell them what I have done. You must respond through evangelism. The apostles who wanted thrones have been anointed as missionaries. They have work to do. He does not leave them to their own power and their own will, but he promises to send the Holy Spirit who will fill them with the power they need to accomplish this mission. In verse 49, he says, And behold, I am sending you the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. So today's text shows us that everyone will respond to the resurrection. You have two responses today. If you have not yet believed, ask God to give you faith, which will overcome your doubt. Ask him to open up the scriptures that you may see and you may believe that Jesus Christ truly died, was buried, and was resurrected on the third day for the forgiveness of your sins. He stands in heaven pleading before the God with accomplished forgiveness. Christ forgave even the disciples. He will forgive you. If you have believed, then you are a witness of these things. Go into all the nations is your response. Begin with your home, your workplace, where you worship. Here, outreach opportunities at the UC. Tell everyone of how you have disbelieved for joy at one point for what God did. Begin with one person. Take the prayer guide from the back room. Choose some person to intentionally pray for, to pursue sharing the gospel with. Put it on the board, pray for them, and pursue opportunities. We have certainty that Christ is risen from the dead and we too will rise from the dead. Thomas Watson says, we are more sure to arise out of our graves than out of our beds. Brothers, there are two ways to understand that. Do you take tomorrow for granted? You are more sure to arise out of the grave than you are out of your bed. Do not waste a moment of the time that God has given you. Do not fear what tomorrow will bring, but be faithful today. Do not fear man, because we have the power of the joyfully resurrected Savior. They cannot harm our soul. They can only beautify our glorified bodies. Go in peace with the power of God to proclaim these things that you have witnessed. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the grace and the mercy that you have shown us. Lord, you purchased salvation at a great cost. Lord, would you forgive us as we continue to sin? Lord, give us faith where we have no faith. Would you strengthen our belief when we doubt? Lord, I pray that you would open up the scriptures throughout the week as we read and meditate on your word, that we would believe all of the things written concerning you. Lord, would you use sinful and fallen people like us to proclaim your gospel? Lord, I pray for every single name that is on that board in the back room. Lord, I pray for every person who we have committed to evangelize, that we would see fruit. Lord, we pray that these people would believe the gospel, they would repent, and they would turn to Christ. Lord, we pray to see them in heaven, and Father, we look forward to the day where we are resurrected in all of our scars. In Christ's name I pray, amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.